complete and utter power. And we ask that you would use it to increase our faith and to glorify your name in answering these prayers. Father, we pray that you would give this local church a grand vision of your glory, that we would be a people enraptured by who you are and everything that you have done to save us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to delight in you and and to find our ultimate and deepest possible joy in you so that we might be rooted and grounded in love as the waves of this fallen world crash down over us. Father, we extend our gaze beyond the four walls of this church building, and we pray for other faithful, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches in the area. We think of Pastor Jonathan Epps from Discipleship Baptist Church in Huntsville. Father, we ask that you would encourage him and strengthen him, even as he wrestles with difficulties that come with being a small church. We pray that you would help him to remember that size is not the ultimate determiner of faithfulness. Father, we pray that you would help him to remember that as a servant, he is called to be faithful and nothing more and to leave the rest up to you. Father, we thank you for two other faithful churches in our very own city. We thank you for Decatur Presbyterian, Pastor Tommy Lee and the elders that are serving there. We thank you for Steve Bateman and his work over at First Bible and the elders that are serving there. Father, we pray that you would protect those men who are serving and leading those churches as shepherds. Keep them from the sin in their own hearts and from Satan and from the fallen ways of this world. We know that there's nothing more that Satan would love than to see these men fall in disgrace and to watch the church come crashing down around them. Father, we lift up Summit Crossing in East Limestone. We pray that you would allow them to be a vibrant gospel witness in that county. Father, we know that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, even this morning, are suffering and wrestling and having to endure persecution. We think about the churches of Iran as they face a a Muslim theonomistic government. We know that the Christians who live in that land feel hopeless, that there will never be a time where they can worship your son, Jesus Christ, in freedom as they worship him in spirit and truth. We know that you are the God of the impossible. You are the God who makes things happen. You open doors. You topple kings and governments. You give freedom. So we pray that you would do just that in the church of Iran. Father, we think of Dubai, that strategic city and safe haven for the gospel in the Middle East. We see so many thousands of people pouring in from all over the world to work and to live and to make money in that city. We recognize that by your sovereign hand, Christians have been given permission to do gospel work there in that land. It it seems impossible that this could be true, and yet it is, God. And so we pray that you would bless the gospel laborers there who are planting churches in the heart of the Middle East. We pray that the men and the women and the children who are coming into that city will see and hear and know the gospel of salvation that can only be found in your son, Jesus Christ. We think about our brothers and sisters in Myanmar who face violence on a weekly and monthly basis from radical Buddhists in their land. Father, we ask that you would strengthen the wives and the children of the men who are suffering most, who are being attacked and beaten publicly. 
We pray that you would provide sustenance for them as they recover from those attacks. We pray that the community there would see the way that these Christians suffer well to the glory of your son Jesus Christ and that they would be moved by it, that they would be impressed by it, and that they would be led to consider who has the truth and beauty in this universe. Those who would kill over religion or those who would die for their Savior. We know that so many brothers and sisters all over the world are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, we think about Shad and Heather Welsh of Pioneers doing the best that they can to get team members into the jungles of South America to take the gospel to the native peoples there. We know that they've suffered much physical stress, emotional, financial. Their family has had ups and downs. Father, we pray that you would bless them for their sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would bless all the faithful missions sending agencies as they try to send people out into the lost nations of this world. We pray that you would keep them faithful, that they would remain true to the gospel, that they would not merely send out social workers. We know that the world can do that, and they can probably do it better than us in some ways. The unique thing that we have to offer, Lord, is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves men from hell. And so we pray that these missions agencies would keep their focus primarily on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as Christians are transformed by the gospel, that they would go out and seek good and do justice as they have been changed by the just one. Father, we pray for all parachurch organizations that support the local church in sending out missionaries. We ask that you would give them the budgets and the organizational structures that they need in order to accomplish this task. We lift up all those in our society who have positions of authority. We think of school teachers who are so often overworked and under-equipped. We recognize that they have the influence in the lives of so many of the young people in our city. And so, Father, we ask that you would uh, if there are Christian school teachers, allow them to let the light of Christ shine through their work there in those schools. And for those who do not belong to your son, Jesus Christ, we pray that they would be wise and well-equipped for the work of training and teaching children all of the good things about this life, from arithmetic to sociology and anything in between. Father, we pray for single mothers, even single mothers in this church. We recognize that this situation is not optimal, and nevertheless, we find ourselves here. And so we ask that you would help strengthen and equip the men of this church to be fathers to the fatherless among us. We pray that no child in this church, Lord, would grow up feeling like they don't have someone who loves them in the Lord, who is also a man, who is willing to be there for them in every way that they may need. Father, we pray for singing in the church. We pray that you would help us to be a people who regularly and joyfully sing praises to your holy name. We pray that we would not just come in here and open our mouths and move our lips and let air pass over our tongues, but rather that our hearts would be enraptured with joy. We pray for singles in the church. We know that marriage shows the beauty of the gospel, but we also know that singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. We praise you for the life of young single people in this church 
And if you don't bring them a husband or a wife anytime soon, we pray that they would show how worthy you are in the way that they love you in their singleness. Father, we pray that you would bless our members meeting as we exercise the keys of the kingdom later. And we pray that you would, if it be your will, even add to our number. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Before I get started, um, I think I may have a perforated eardrum. So, yeah, not good. If my tone and pitch sounds worse than normal, maybe you heard it in my singing. I'm sorry. But if it does, if, if I, it seems like I can't control the volume of my voice for some particular reason, it's maybe because I have a hole in my eardrum. So pray for me, if you wouldn't mind. So Ephesians chapter 1. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, you're more than welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that Bible home with you. If you're not used to reading the Bible and you need help finding the book of Ephesians, just ask someone around you. The chapter numbers are the big, bold, black numbers, and the verse numbers are the tiny numbers. So chapter 1, big, bold 1, starting in verse 3, tiny little number there, 3. I want you to know that I've been burdened for this sermon in my sermon prep all week. I've felt bowed down by the weight of this text. I feel bowed down by it now as I stand before you to preach it. It's a weighty thing to preach God's word week in and week out. Uh, But the reason why I feel an extra burden of pressure this morning is because I have a goal with this morning's sermon. It's a big one. My hope is that the word that we are going to study together this morning will fundamentally change you as a Christian. Now you may be thinking, Sean, isn't that what all of God's word is supposed to do all the time? Yes, but sometimes there's even a special emphasis. Sometimes you read something and it can change your entire paradigm. It can change the way you view God. It can change the way you view yourself. And I think this morning's text can be one of those texts. I'm hoping that every single Christian in this room leaves this service with a bigger, more glorious view of the God of the Bible than you might have had when you came in. I'm hoping that our lives as we meditate on the glorious God of our salvation, will erupt and overflow with praise and glory to God in light of what we see in this text about what he has done to save us. Now, if as we're walking through this text together, you find yourself responding in that way, erupting in praise, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're in good company. The company of the Apostle Paul, in fact, because I think that that's exactly what Paul is doing in these verses, verses 3 through 14. I think Paul is considering the gospel and then he is simply erupting in praise in light of what he's seen there. Uh, This is called a baraka in Hebrew. You see it all throughout the pages of your Old Testament. Uh, A baraka is just what happens when someone like the psalmist, for example, meditates on who God is and on what God has done to save his people. And then he just erupts, breaks forth in praise, almost as if it couldn't be contained. 
I think that's what's happening here with Paul in these verses. It's as if Paul is sitting down and considering what's happening with the Ephesians, and we saw that last week, right? We talked about Paul's work in Ephesus and just how this incredible work of God is taking place amongst the Gentiles there in Ephesus through his ministry. And it's as if Paul is sitting down to put pen to paper and he's thinking about the work of God, the grace of God in their lives, and before he gets into the body of, letter, of the letter, he just can't contain himself. You know, Paul's usual letters begin with a word of thanksgiving, right? And he gets to that. He starts his word of thanksgiving in 15. But it seems as if before he could get to his normal routine of how he writes the letters, writes letters, as he's meditating, he just can't help himself. He just has to stop and praise God. And so he begins in verse 3 with these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, to, to bless God simply means to glorify him, to extol his name, to praise him. So he's saying, God, in light of your rich blessings, we bless you, we praise your holy name. Now, the question is, what are these spiritual blessings that Paul is thinking of when he responds in praise? Well, quite simply, I think it's this. Everything that God the Father has done through God the Son by the power of God the Spirit to save your soul. Those are the spiritual blessings that we are praising God for this morning. So with that in mind, let's read verses 4 through 14 and then we'll, we will dig in together. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word is entirely sufficient for our lives, and we pray that it would change us this morning. Amen. The first chapter of Ephesians is one of the most theologically rich chapters in all of the Bible. And like rich food, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming, right? Uh, not according to my wife. There's no such thing as chocolate that's too rich. But for most of us, right, it's something that's too rich can be a bit overwhelming. And so in order to keep us from being overwhelmed by all of the glories of this text, I'm going to focus on what I call kind of the, the main blood vessels of the text. If you don't know what I mean, let me explain. Uh, 
Your body is uh, full of blood vessels. You probably know that your body has veins and arteries, right? They carry the oxygenated and the deoxygenated blood like a system, pressurized, depressurized all throughout your body, right? Well, what you may not know is that you have smaller vessels called venules and arterioles, right? And those break, break off of the veins and the arteries and they carry the blood away from kind of the main trunk brain of your body and out into the extremities, okay? Now, what you may not also know is that you have uh, tinier blood vessels that even connect those called capillaries. So if you squeeze your finger, you know, they turn white and then it turns pink again. That's capillary refill, all right? So you have this system where you have the main blood vessels, which go to secondary, and then finally they meet in places like your lungs and fingertips with these tertiary blood vessels, the smallest ones. Well, this text is full of all kinds of rich theological truth. But I'm going to stay away from some of the secondary and tertiary things that I think we could pull out of the text this morning because I just want us to focus on the main vein and the main artery of the text so that we can really get a solid grasp of what's going on here. So with that in mind, I have two points for you this morning. I spent an hour trying to think of a really fun, alliterative way to put this together, and I couldn't. So uh, deal with it. Point number one, broaden your horizons. Broaden your horizons. Point number two, praise God for what you see there, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you in point one to take the frame through which you view God and salvation and expand it. And then once you see what you can now see with a fuller frame, I want you to praise God for what you see with that fuller vision. So point number one, broaden your horizon. The main thing that I want you to see in this point it's simple. It's this. Salvation is from first to last a work of God. Salvation is from first to last a work of God. So in order to do that, I'm going to kind of take us through a little guided tour of the text. So if you're the kind of person to kind of like open your Bible, read the text, and then close it for the rest of the sermon, shame on you, and now you're caught. Open up your Bibles. We're going to walk through the text together, do a little bit of a guided tour. If you're a note taker or a marker, get the glitter pen or the highlighter or the pen or the pencil out and just be prepared to mark up your Bible. Even if you have a pew Bible, you can mark it up. That's fine too. I hope somebody comes back behind you and reads this and, and notices what we highlight here. So all hands and feet and arms and legs inside the vehicle, okay? Starting in verses 4 and 5, we see the work of God the Father in our salvation. Starting in verses 4 and 5, we see the work of God the Father in our salvation. So verse 4, it says, even as he chose us in him, that is God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, this is simply what theologians call the doctrine of election. We're not going to get super deep into that this morning. It means exactly what it says it means. It means that God chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. So before God spoke light into existence, before he separated the sea and the dry land, before he, you know, the, the plants and the animals and all that, before you were even a twinkle in your mama's eye, God had a plan to choose you. And he did. He chose you. And he chose you for a very specific purpose. It tells you what that purpose is. So that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Okay, Paul picks this language up later in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about husbands and wives and Christ and the church and he says Christ is going to present the church to himself and he describes what the church is going to look like on that day. Spotless, without blemish. The same kind of thing that we see here, holy, blameless. In verse 5, we see more of the work of the Father in our salvation. It says this, and we'll start at the end of verse 4. It says, in love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So what we see here is not only did the Father have a plan to save a people for himself before the foundations of the world, but he also set things in motion in order to accomplish that end. He had a plan and he went about carrying out that plan. And it says that in love he did this. So if you ever feel any tension about the doctrines of election and predestination and maybe that doesn't seem very loving, that's a conversation that I'd encourage you to explore, especially in light of what this text says. It says that he predestined us in love. Now, if he predestined us, that means he plans us for something, and the thing that he planned us for was to be adopted, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, If you remember in our Sermon on the Lord's Prayer, we spent a lot of time talking about this. But what this basically means is that we were spiritual orphans. Because of our sin and the sin of Adam, we did not have a home in heaven. We were under the wrath of God. Paul's going to get to that in Ephesians chapter 2. We were separated from God. And we had no hope in this world. But God made a plan to come and pull us out of that orphanage. He came and he took pity on us and he loved us and he he said, okay, you're going to come with me. My name's going to be your name. My inheritance, and he talks about this here, about the rich inheritance. My inheritance is going to be your inheritance. All the rights and privileges and responsibilities that come with being a part of the family of God are now yours because you are taking my name and you are a part of this family. So the Father elects, predestines, and adopts. Starting in verse 7, we see the role of God the Son in our salvation. The role of God the Son in our salvation. Here we see, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Redemption isn't a word that we really use often these days, and when we do, we maybe don't really mean it exactly the same way these original hearers would have meant it or even heard it. Redemption is something that comes from the language of captivity. It was used of the Jews when they were under the rule of the Egyptians. It was used in the slave trade, uh, not the chattel slave trade of America, but the ancient slave trade of the ancient world, right? And redemption simply means to, to have your freedom purchased, to have your freedom secured, and usually that would come through something called a ransom price, okay? And what verse 7 is telling us is that Jesus Christ redeemed us, and it says, through his blood. So the blood of Christ was the ransom price for our souls. The, the justice of God demanded something of us. It, it held us captive because of our sin. And the result was we were going to die and go to hell and face the wrath of God forever. But Christ made a way for us to be adopted, to be freed from that, to be rescued from that. And instead of paying our own blood, it was the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. Now we could hang out here all day, but we're not going to. Let's move on. Verses 13 and 14, we see the work of the Spirit, God the Spirit, 
in our salvation. Starting in verse 13, we see this. It says, In him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, uh, Katie Miller gave me this letter. Well, she gave me a card. It was very sweet, very encouraging. And uh, did, I don't know if she did this because I've used this as an illustration before, but what she did was is she put some wax on here, and then she, she pressed a symbol down into it, uh, it, just to make it pretty, I think. But in the ancient world, this would have been incredibly common. If you had a scroll or a message to send, you would seal it by putting wax on it. And then the king or whoever worked for the king that was powerful enough to have a ring, he would have the symbol of the king on his ring, and he would press it down into the wax. So as the person carrying the message across the kingdom, as they were traveling around, they would say, hey, listen, don't mess with me. I have an official message here. Don't tamper with this. Don't mess with this. That seal on that message was the guarantee that it got from the king's throne to wherever it was supposed to be. And here we see that the Spirit is the seal of our soul. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God taking his signet ring and pressing it down into our salvation to guarantee that we make it to where we're supposed to go. Then in verse 14, if we continue to read, it says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I don't know if anybody here grew up poor enough to put things on layaway, but that was pretty common in my family. You know, mom would say, like, tell me what you want for Christmas, like in July, and then she would go and put it on layaway at Walmart, and she would put like $20 down on it and pay like $10 a month on it until Christmas time, and then I would get the big present or whatever it is. That's, that's, that's kind of what's happening here, right? The, the Spirit is our guarantee. That's, that's just language that means He's the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's the thing that guarantees that we actually get there, or He is the ga- thing that guarantees, the person who guarantees. So what you see here in these verses is that before the world began, the Father elected and predestined and adopted us. Then he sent his son to purchase those whom he elected and predestined and adopted. And he did. The son came and redeemed us by his blood. And then the spirit came and regenerated us and then sealed us. And his plan is to deliver us all the way to heaven. Do you see now why I wanted the title of this point to be Broaden Your Horizons? When you think about your salvation you probably have a very narrow view of the work of God in your salvation. You know, you probably think about something that that happened in the maybe near past, you know, where maybe you had a conversation with someone or you read a book or you heard a message and then something clicked. Or maybe you don't even remember something clicking. You just remember that things kind of changed after that. And you think, yeah, that was my salvation experience. But I think what Paul is trying to show you is that the, what, what it takes to bring you to salvation is something infinitely bigger than you could ever even imagine or comprehend. I think what Paul wants you to know this morning is that contrary to the way that you think about your salvation, uh, for example, you probably think, hey, I chose God. But Paul wants you to know that before you were ever born, God first chose you, and it was only his choosing you that enabled you to choose him. And then he predestined you towards that end. And then he sent his spirit 
to accomplish that for you. I think about the Holy Spirit like uh, the member of the Trinity who keeps us from making a gutter ball out of our lives, right? The, the Holy Spirit is like the guardrail that keeps us from careening off the road as we take the sharp turns of this fallen world. He leads us and guides us into all wisdom and truth. He convicts us and brings us to repentance and he carries our limping bodies all the way home to heaven. Look at all that God is doing to save your soul. Look at all that God has done. Look at all that God is doing and look at all that God will do to bring you home to him. In contrast, if you think about yourself and you ask yourself, well, Sean, what have I done to contribute to my salvation? Well, in the words of one theologian, you haven't contributed anything to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the author and finisher of our faith from first to last, from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have a very narrow view of our salvation. And I think in light of scripture, we have to expand our horizons. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, Sean, this is great, fantastic, we get it. You like theology, right? The economy of God and the Trinity and salvation, fantastic. But what does this have to do with my life? How is this gonna help me make it from Monday to Friday? Well, there are like 50 different ways I could respond to that. But here's the most practical. What you learn in this text teaches you that you can have assurance in your salvation. It teaches you that if you truly belong to Christ, that your salvation cannot be lost. It cannot be taken from you. There is nothing more practical for you to know than the idea that God is completely in control of you getting home to heaven. Far from giving you a license to sin, this doctrine of assurance should strengthen you to fight sin in your life. And it should give you the endurance to run the race hard after Christ in light of what he has done to save you. If God has determined to save your soul, the question is this, who can thwart his plans? Listen to Isaiah's answer to that in Isaiah 46. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now what makes God distinctive? Well, this right here. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, like before the foundations of the world, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Again, in Isaiah chapter 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so will it be. As I have purposed, so will it stand. Do you think the enemies of God can keep you out of heaven? Can keep you from making it home? No. In Acts chapter five, as the apostles were preaching, the enemies of God stood up 
prepared to kill them, to stone them for the gospel that they were preaching. And listen to the words of Gamaliel, the Pharisee, who we don't even know if he ever came to Christ, but he stood up and he said this about who God is and his purposes. But if it is from God, that is, their preaching of the gospel, you will not be able to stop them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. If your salvation is a work of God, nobody can stop it. And anybody who does try to stop it will find themselves fighting against the God of your salvation. And that is a place that nobody wants to be. It's a fight that nobody can win. If God has purposed your salvation, no one can thwart his plans. But what about Satan? He's crafty and he's scheming. And as we saw a couple weeks ago in our study in the Lord's Prayer, he is in some sense behind most of what's happening in our lives to try to draw us away from Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus says that it is the will of the Father that he not lose any that he has been given. He says in John chapter 10 that no one can snatch the sheep out of his hand. And when he said no one, he meant no one, not even Satan. When Peter was on the verge of denying Jesus and Jesus knew about it, but Peter didn't know it, Jesus prayed and he said, Lord, don't let him be taken from me. To paraphrase. But you may be thinking, but what about my own sin? Can't my own sin keep me out of heaven? Do you think that your sin is any match for our God? Your sin is not God. Your sin, your brokenness, your weakness is no match for God. God is God. And if he has purposed to save your soul, don't you think that he's wise enough to take into account the fact that you're going to fall and mess up along the way? Of course he did. That's the reason why he sent his son, to die for your sins. He didn't just die for the sins that you committed before you became a Christian. He died for all of your sins. In Christ, if you are in Christ, your sins are already forgotten. They've already been cast as far as the east from the west. Your sins cannot keep you out of heaven. Now, if you continue to lead a life of unrepentant sin, friends, you may not belong to Jesus like you think you do. God did not elect you without a plan to deal with your sin. And we could keep going, but what about this? And what about that? And what about the third? No. What shall separate us from the love of Christ, asked Paul? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer to that is no, friends. We can trust that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing more practical than this, Christian. You must cling to these truths. You must cling to the election, the predestination, the adoption, the atonement of your soul, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You know, if the text said that God had a plan, but not really, you know, he created the world and things were good, but then Adam messed it up, and then he was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll, uh, let me try to figure this out. Oh, I'll send Jesus, and, and he'll try to fix this, 
but only if you're really willing. And then the son came and he died and, and God's up there pensively just kind of biting his fingernails, just hoping and praying that you just accept Jesus. You know, man, I sure hope they do get on board with this whole Jesus thing because I want him up here with me in heaven. If that's what the text said, you'd have every good reason to doubt your salvation, to think that you could lose your salvation. If it depended on you to make it to heaven, you wouldn't get there and neither would I. But that is the exact opposite of what this text teaches. This text teaches you that God is the author of your salvation from first to last, from beginning to end, from before the foundations of the world to this very moment to eternity's future which you cannot even begin to comprehend. Point number two, praise God for what you see there. I think one of the most dangerous things for a preacher to do is to try and elicit an emotional and spiritual response from his hearers, okay? I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I'm saying it's dangerous. What you can end up seeing happen when pastors try to elicit emotional and spiritual responses from, her, from their people is just all kinds of chicanery, all kinds of foolishness, carnival tricks of the spiritual variety. You begin to see things like manipulative music and lighting. You begin to see pastors who value a turn of a phrase more than the exact accuracy of the scripture. You know, they want to say something that will strike you with more force, even if that means they have to abandon a little bit of the meaning of what they're talking about. Having said that, I'm going to spend the rest of this sermon telling you how you should respond to the truth that you've just heard from this text. Christian, your only right response can be praise. Now, you may sit there quietly and stoically, or you may shout amen. You may cry, you may not cry, you may raise your hands, you may not raise your hands. I... You know, different people, different cultures, different responses from the things that are going on in their hearts, I don't know. But I do know that your only response to this, if you belong to Christ, is a response of praise. And not just right here, right now in this building, in these pews, but as you go back out into the world, your only response can be a life that is overflowing with praise to God in light of what he has done to save you through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. That is exactly what's happening in these verses. Paul is meditating on these big, beautiful gospel truths, and he is erupting in praises. From eternity's past to eternity's future, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have been working together to save you. So praise him. When you think about things like election and predestination, which are controversial terms that we're preaching on, they come directly from the text. That should result in your praising God. Let me, let me help draw this out from you directly from the text. In, in verse six, if you look there, it says that the work of the Father in salvation is, look at, look at this verse, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. 
what this means is that Paul is saying that God is doing what he's doing the way that he's doing it for a reason. I call this God's philosophy of ministry. You see, God could have gone about saving us any which way he pleased. But he chose to go about it for this particular reason. Uh, in this particular way, for a particular reason. And the reason is so that you would look at the grace of God and be astounded and respond by glorifying God for what you see of his grace in the gospel. In verse 12, you see the same thing, the phrase, to the praise of his glory. Well, what glory? Well, the glory of his grace that he just said in verse 6. In verse 14, in reference to the work of the Spirit, again, we see the same thing. It says, to the praise of his glory. Glory to the Father who elected and predestined and adopted. Glory to the Son who ransomed and redeemed us. And glory to the Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. Behold the wonders of the Trinity. Blessed be the Trinity. One of my favorite movies, and I can't believe how old it is now, uh, The Gladiator. Marcus Aurelius, uh, you know, he, he stands there bloody after he's just killed, you know, man and beast, and he looks up at the crowd and he goes, are you not entertained? That was my Gladiator impression. I'm not Marcus Aurelius and I'm, I'm, I'm no gladiator, I'm just your pastor, but I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at this, and I'm just trying to just pull it out, right? I'm just trying to air it out for you. I'm just trying to give you everything I can from this text, and I just want to cry out, are you not amazed? Is your mind not blown? Shouldn't you praise God for what you see here? Behold our God. Now, we haven't taken time to fully unpack the doctrines that Paul lays out here in Ephesians chapter 1. Election, predestination, penal substitutionary atonement, eternal security. These themes, though, I want you to know, are, are not for the advanced class of the church, as is sometimes supposed. These are not the themes that are for honor students, in the church, those who are extra diligent and like to read theology books, the first ones who are probably after this service going to make a beeline over to that book nook to see what books are over there and what they need to read. That's not what these doctrines are for. If you remember from the introductory sermon last week, we saw that this, is a, uh, uh, this letter is written to a bunch of brand new Christians and not even Christians who have a theological background. It's written to a church full of people who were just like basically yesterday worshiping pagans. Right? So Paul is, you know, just unpacking the depths of the glories of the Gospels to these brand new Christians. Not for Christians who have seminary degrees. Not for Christians who are in the upper tier of Christian education. In the mind of Paul, these are the fundamental truths of the faith that you have to understand if you want to understand who God is and who you are in light of what God has done. Now, these ideas, these doctrines, some of them, that basically this whole truth, right, that salvation is holy entirely of the Lord, that God is completely sovereign of sal in salvation. Uh, you know, as well as I do, that um, these truths do not always lead to people praising God. These truths can at best confuse some people. 
At worst, they can lead to revulsion. They can and have caused division in churches, in friendships, in families, in parachurch organizations, and all kinds of ministry partnerships. And, and for this reason, not a few pastors have chosen to just treat these truths uh, like polite society treats religion and politics. We're just not going to talk about it. Right? It's, it's better just to get along. Don't mention it at the dinner table. You know your Uncle Johnny. Don't get him riled up. Well, friends, I, I've taken the exact opposite route. Right? I, I've chosen in my discipleship relationships, in the teaching ministry of this church, and in general, to just take the opposite route, to not avoid this, but to air it out and to, to expose us to it. And I'm going to explain why. In the mind of Paul, a diminished view of the supremacy of God and salvation results in a diminishing of the glory of God in our worship. A diminished view of God and his supremacy in our salvation, his sovereignty, his, his being the first and last, the one who does everything, the one who carries out all the verbs in this text. If we don't see that, then there will be a diminished worship from us, his people. If it's true that God does, and I think it is from this text, that God does everything the way that he does it so that we will look, him, look at him and praise him for the glory of his grace, then to water down or to avoid or to dull the edges of any aspect of his grace is to dull the glory of God in our praise. And worse than that, it robs you of joy. Joy that is meant to be yours in Christ. Joy that is meant to come to you in light of what you comprehend of God in the gospel. The glory of God and your joy as a believer are inextricably connected. And to diminish one is to diminish another. Let me give you an illustration. I was a young husband in love once. Now I'm just a husband who's in love. But at one point, I was young, and I was very freshly in love. And if you're, you've, you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, right? So just imagine, forget me, right, with my little Frito Bandito mustache that I had at that age. Consider just a young husband, as he sits with his young, beautiful bride, right? And he's, he's holding her, he's caressing her hair, he's, he's whispering sweet nothings into her ear, you know? He's telling her everything that he loves about her. You're so sweet and you're so patient and you're so kind and you're so lovely in your eyes and your ears and your kisses are like little puffs of air and, you know, raindrops from heaven and all that stuff. I don't even know what kind of little nickname you might have for her, right? But in those moments... As that young husband is holding his bride and he's telling her everything that he loves about her, everything about who she is and what she does, that he just, uh, just, he loves it. He's glorifying her, right? That's what he's doing. He's giving her glory. Now in that moment, as he is glorifying her, do you think he's devoid of joy? No. He's full of joy. You see, he's looking at his wife and he is just bursting with joy. And the joy spills the banks of his heart. And it comes out of his mouth. And it leads to him praising her with his lips. If you were to diminish his view of his wife in that moment. 
if you were somehow, some way able to tinge her with something that made her less beautiful, less lovely, less kind. I'm not saying ugly. I'm not talking like, you know, lock, lock them in a cage in the basement kind of thing here. I'm talking like if, if you just saw her as like just less glorious than she probably is in that moment. If he couldn't, if he didn't feel it, you know, maybe even if you've been married long enough, you've even experienced this in your marriage, you know, you felt a diminishing joy in your spouse. It happens. If he has less glor- a less glorious view of her in his mind, does his joy not decrease as well? Of course it does. His joy in his wife and his glorying in his wife are connected, inextricably so. To have a diminished view of God and his work in our salvation, I'm not saying to completely have a heretical view, I'm just saying to have a slightly diminished view of God and what he does in Christ to save us is to diminish his glory. And on top of that, it is to diminish your joy. If you look at my uh, left wrist and my right wrist, maybe sometime when I'm not covering them up in the pulpit, you'll see two tattoos. Uh, I don't know if I would get them again today, but I have two tattoos. On the left, it says joy. On the right, it says glory. I got these right before I went to go to the mission field, before we went to the jungles of Peru. And I got them there so that I would have a perpetual reminder of the reason why I exist. To have a perpetual reminder of the reason why Christ saved me. To have a perpetual reminder as I had to deal with ants and spiders and mosquitoes and diseases and diarrhea and loneliness and depression. As I dealt with all these difficulties, I didn't want to forget the reason why I was down there, the mission that God gave me and gave his church. It's the joy of his elect and the glory of his name. We as a church must never rest until every nation under heaven and earth cry out in joy with you and with me and with Paul and with every Christian throughout the generations who have cried out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The all-consuming passion of God is the joy of his people and the glorification of his name. And what that means is that your all-consuming passion in life cannot be your children. It cannot be your church. It cannot be your husband or your wife or any other really good thing. It can't be CrossFit or jujitsu or this or that. It can't even be this body, these people. It can't be this community. It has to be deeper than that. It has to be the joy of his people and the glory of his name. As a church, this is where our money should be spent. This is where our time must be invested. This is where our talents should be focused. Brothers and sisters, we must resist the urge to give into the malaise that can so easily overtake churches in the West, where we just come to think about this meeting as just something that we do on Sundays. As, as just kind of like, this is our community. This is our, you know, some people, they go to football games, but we go to church. No, this can never become that. It is my job, and elders, it is your job to remind the people in this church that we exist for a purpose. One of my greatest fears as a pastor of this church 
is that we are going to start to experience mission drift, that we're gonna start to forget the reason why we're here, why we're, why we're assembled together in the first place. You can go find, find friends somewhere else. I want you to be friends, but you can go find them somewhere else. What unites us here must be this, what we see in this passage. This needs to be built into our DNA while we're still small, and who knows, maybe we'll be small forever. But assuming that we grow, this needs to be built into our DNA so that as we do, we will never forget it. Look at verse 10 of chapter one. Speaking of everything that God has has done in Christ to save us, he, he says this in verse 10. He says that there's a plan, and this plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the cosmic view of the gospel, right? There's the view of the gospel that's just you and Jesus, but then there's this larger view of the gospel, the cosmic view. This idea that God is fixing everything, not just relationships between Jews and Gentiles, black and white, rich and poor, young and old. He's uniting everything together. And that starts with the Great Commission. And what you need to know is that the jet fuel of the Great Commission is what you see in these verses. If we want as a church to carry out the Great Commission that our Lord has given to us, we cannot take our eyes off of the glories of grace and salvation because if we do, we will find ourselves moving forward without the kind of biblical motivation I think God intends for us to have as we carry out that mission. Uh, In Sunday school, we... Uh, studied a really amazing John Newton hymn. And the whole point of that hymn, and by the way, we didn't even plan it. The providence of God was incredible. Uh, our brother Will uh, led us in a study of John Newton's hymn. And, and the, basically the whole point of this hymn is look at God, look at what he's done through his son, now respond and praise him. So I can't think of anything more fitting than now as I pray for uh, Grant to come up and lead us in singing that song. And we consider the gospel and we respond by praising him together. Let me pray. Father, we know that you desire for your people to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we thank you for giving us your spirit so that we can respond in that way.